Well, um, it's, it's great to be up here this morning. And uh, I was thinking, how on earth do I start this sermon? I'm ne- never good at working out how you would begin. And I was thinking, well, James starts saying, who is wise and understanding among you? I was thinking, maybe I'll ask you to stand up if you're wise. And then thought, no one's going to stand up. You're all too, too sensible for that. And I'd be the one left here standing by myself. And uh, if you've seen how the projection's gone this morning, you'll know that I need to sit down, really, don't I? Um, but, but while I'm here, I'm going to throw Em under the bus as well, throw my wife under the bus, because um, we can't manage a calendar between us either. We thought it was a, a friend's birthday party this morning, so Emma taking the kids to the party. It's next week. <laughs> um, so Scott started the service saying, if you're wa- you are all wise, you are here. No, sorry. <laughs> It's a good job I was preaching, otherwise I wouldn't be, would I? Um, But no, it's great to be here, and it's great to to open this passage together. Um, But there's a lot of challenges in it, aren't there? Um, Because it is all about uh, wisdom. Now, uh, James starts um, talking about wisdom um, after what Chris preached um, two weeks ago about the tongue and how we relate to one another. Um, And Chris talked about how Things that we say can cause hurt and damage and, and mess things up. Um, and James's answer is to move on to talk about wisdom. And uh, when you want to find something out now, um, you look at Google, don't you? Maybe not the definition of wisdom, but um, Google defines wisdom anyway as the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. The quality of being wise. I don't know how that tells you what wisdom is, being wise. But anyway, that's what Google says. And... Um, and uh, that's a quite a good definition of wisdom, but I, my favorite is probably this. This is the one Sarah shared a few weeks back when we started in James. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Um, although it does raise the question, what about pineapple on pizza? I think there's, there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? Um, but anyway, that is a good definition of wisdom. Because wisdom isn't just uh, knowing things, there's a, there's a real-life quality to it, isn't there? It's, it's sort of street smart, if you like. It's, it's knowing what to do with what you know and applying it rightly to life. Um, I'm joking aside, it, it's vital, isn't it? When we look about the world, uh, we've prayed about Ukraine. And just a few weeks back, all the news was about how do you avoid nuclear war? How do you support the people in Ukraine and not make things worse? And that's a a call that takes so much wisdom, doesn't it? Um, If you're an MP at the moment, how do you uh, deal with Partygate and the cost of living crisis? How do you make those calls? It demands wisdom. And for us, how do we navigate all those challenges for us personally or for the people that we know? How do we navigate life at the moment? Uh, How do we navigate relationships with people and not hurt others? Wisdom is, is vital, isn't it? We need it um, to get through life. Um, well, Jesus told us a story um, about wisdom. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, when he taught people how to live, um, he said, um, well, there's a song, isn't there? We all know it, but I'm too wise to sing it for you this morning. Um, the wise man built his house upon the rock. We know that, don't we? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The rains came down and the floods came up, and it was all okay. I can't remember how the rest goes. <laughs> but the foolish man built his house upon the sand. He put this nice beach hut up, um, and then the floods came, and the beach hut was no more. Um, see, Jesus said wisdom is, is not just knowing stuff, um, but it's acting on it. 
when you see the way the world is, act appropriately. So if you're building um, a house and you're expecting floods, you better put in good foundations. Um, a few weeks back when I had my hair cut, um, the, the lady who was cutting it was telling me about her retirement. Um, she's about to retire and move to Spain. And you can see that kitchen with the trees there telling me all about the kitchen in the garden. They were never going to cook inside. Now, if you're in Spain, that's quite a wise thing to do, isn't it? Um, but if you live anywhere near Lynn Baptist Church, you'll know that it's not a good idea. Um, so the thing is about wisdom is that we can't really say wisdom is doing this because the kitchen in the sun, definitely a good idea in Spain, but not good here. The, the same decision can be wise one day and utter foolishness the next. But we do need to live in light of what we see around us, don't we? If we know that every single day it's hot sun, build your kitchen outside. But if you know that 50% of the time you're going to get wet, then it's not a good idea. And, and so that is almost what Jesus was, was saying, if you like. Build knowing the conditions around you. Build with your eyes open. Um, he did say as well that it's, it's following his teaching. That is what it is to be wise. Um, now, a bit of a silly game. Um, we're going to have a, a World Championships of Wisdom. Now, we're in, we're in the semi-final, so I'm really sorry. If you can think of someone that should have been in this, they'd be knocked out earlier on. Um, but first contender in semi-final one, Martin Lewis from Money Saving Expert. So, good with finances. He can tell you how to find the best deals, how to save a bit of money. Um, and contestant number two, Greta Thunberg. So, she looks at the, the climate change uh, that's coming and says we need to act so we're going to have a quick vote. Um, who thinks it's Martin Lewis who should win money, win money saving, win semi-final one? Any votes for Martin Lewis? Okay, Greta Thunberg. Oh, that's, that's too even, that. Greta wins it, I don't know. Okay, so semi-final two to face Greta in the th- final. Um, sorry if anyone's feeling a bit sore about finals this morning. Um, but... There we go. Some people are feeling sore, though, I think. Um, semi-final two, Her Majesty the Queen against Albus Dumbledore. I, I think I know who's going to win this. Um, anyone voting for the Queen? There we go. Yeah. Anyone for Dumbledore? <laughs> I thought there'd be a few. Um, no, Dumbledore definitely has a few fans. Um, but no, the Queen takes that one. Okay, so Greta versus the Queen. Anyone for Greta? Okay. You're wise, aren't you? She could be watching, couldn't she? Um, the Queen? Yeah, there we go. Now, that's a bit of fun, isn't it? But all of these people could be described as, as wise. Um, they, they look at the world around them and they make solid, sensible decisions. Uh, the Queen has got so much experience. She's seen uh, however many prime ministers. And, and regularly they will go and meet um, and get advice. And we can only hope that they take it. Um, but the Queen has seen it all, hasn't she? And she has experience and sound judgment. Um, but what's interesting is James does not just talk about wisdom in that way. And in fact, James doesn't even say that there's one wisdom. James says that there are two wisdoms. There's earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. I don't know if you noticed that when Scott read the passage, because he said in verse 15 um, about the wisdom, uh, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
but, and in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes down from heaven. So there's two wisdoms. It's possible to be a wise person, but not be wise. I know that sounds a bit strange, but according to James, if our wisdom is harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition, then we're denying the truth. And in God's eyes, we're nothing more than fools. See, what James is saying is if our wisdom is is self-centered, if it's about making our lives better and looking out for our own interests, then it's ultimately foolishness. And what happens is we are denying the truth and what it leads to is disorder and every evil practice. So what James would say is, he looks at those four people, is what is your wisdom for? Is your wisdom to serve other people or to serve yourself? Maybe we, um, maybe we think we're wise in something. Maybe we think we're good with our finances and, and we're the one in our family that can work out the budget and stick to it and make all the right calls. And James would say, yeah, that's great. It's not wrong to do that. But if the end goal is you and your own uh, security, if it's you and your own pleasures, if it's so that you can save up to meet your, um, to find whatever it is that you want to buy, rather than serving others with it, then actually it's, um, it's unspiritual and it's earthly and it's demonic. It's from the devil. If our wisdom is to serve ourselves, that's what it's from. And the opposite, though, the contrast, the wisdom that comes down from heaven, God's wisdom, is, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. See, God's wisdom is completely the opposite. Rather than looking to your own needs first and foremost, it looks to others. See, I love the way it's described, peace-loving. The decision that you make, you weigh up. It's not a kind of get-it-right-at-all-cost mentality. It's not looking at the the situation saying, we need to do this, and I will bulldoze everyone so that they do the right thing. It might be the right decision, but if you bulldoze people to get it through, then James would say, that's not wisdom. See, God's wisdom is peace-loving and considerate and, and submissive. Um, another um, translation puts that as uh, open to reason. Oh, when was the last time someone changed your mind about something? When did someone say, maybe you're doing it wrong, maybe this way would be better, and you listened? It's a hard one to answer that, isn't it? I think we are all uh, quite convinced by our own wisdom and not ready to change but James, said if, James says, if we are to be wise, we're open to reason. We're ready to submit what we think to other people and let them test it. And we are full of, of mercy. Um, we studied James in house group a few months back. And uh, Mark's favorite verse uh, was chapter 2, verse 13. It came off every question. This was the answer. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and that's what wisdom is like. According to James, it's merciful. It triumphs over judgment and looks out for other people. And, and if our earthly and spiritual wisdom leads to disorder and every evil practice, well, godly wisdom leads to peace. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
It's the opposite of disorder. It's harmony. It's peace. It's calm. It's unity. And you can see after uh, what Chris preached on a couple of weeks back, taming a tongue, that that's what we need, isn't it? Taming a tongue because when people argue and say things that hurt others, it, it breaks the community. But what James says is if we are peacemakers, we build harmony and build the community and join ourselves together. So that's what wisdom is, according to James. Uh, and I suppose the next point is, is fairly obvious. Oh, no, I'll skip that bit. Kind of re- irrelevant. Um, so why do we need it? And it, it, of course we do. It's a silly question. But James um, is quite blunt, isn't he? Um, here, in ver- chapter 4, verse 1 to, to 6. No, chapter 1, 1 to 5. Because... James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't, don't they come from your desires you, that battle within you? You desire but don't have, so you kill. You covet and cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. See, it's, it's quite a, a scary few verses when we read this because James is not writing to the church in Galatia or the church at Ephesus. He's not writing to one people group. We can't read this and say, oh, those Galatians had it all wrong and sit smugly as we think that we've got it all right. Chapter 1, verse 1, James writes to uh, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's writing to a scattered church. This is almost like a letter to the church in the United Kingdom, or the church in the world. It's, It's not one specific little congregation, and that's how James describes them. So this is something that can be placed on all of us. It's not something we can dodge. This is us too. And and James says that your lives are a mess because your hearts are a mess. See, if if we could just kind of do a few things and be wise, it'd be great, wouldn't it? If we could sort out the outside, then it would be good. And James says, well, you can't sort out the outside because the problems come from within. And, And actually, Jesus said that first, didn't he? The more we read James, actually, it just feels like he's just rehashing what Jesus has said. Um, I don't think he's got anything original to say, um, which is probably a good thing, isn't it? Um, Because it's full of what Jesus has said all the way through this letter. And that's what he's saying. He's saying all the problems you have externally, they start inside in the heart. But it's, it's extreme how he talks about it, isn't it? Because he says you... You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Is that something that we can actually say about 99% of people? Well, I think, again, James is riffing off Jesus here. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You've heard that it said to the people long ago, don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. See, what Jesus does, he says, well, you might go and do that. But if you trace your, kind of, that back to the heart, it starts with your anger and within. And so, James is just saying the same thing. If you want to trace it back, you might not have gone as far as murder, but your emotions, that's what you're doing to other people. Um, there's a sense in which he's looking, saying, um, if there's something that you want and it, it's not really attainable, who's going 
Who's going to pay the cost? Are you going to sacrifice and say, do you know what? I can't get that. Or do you sacrifice someone else so that you can satisfy your desires? Whether that's um, you come home from a, from a busy day and you want to chill out and you want to rest and whoever it is uh, demands your time at home and, and you snap at them and you kind of force them away because you want a bit of peace. Well, James, so that's your desires um, acting it within, within you at war. And you snipe and you take it out on someone else to get what you want. Maybe it's how you are in the car. It's uh, sometimes a good tell of your emotions, isn't it? When you are driving along and you see the opportunity to let someone out, but do you think, I'm going to let them out? Or do you think, no, I'm going to put my foot down and make sure that they don't get out? Um, That's your desires at war within you, thinking, I need to meet my needs. Forget them. But what's sad is that if that is the state of our hearts, James goes on to say, you quarrel and you fight, you don't have, hang on, you do not have because you don't even ask God. So we quarrel and fight to try to get what we want, and do we get it? No. But we've got broken relationships with each other. We fight. But the next thing is that we, we fight with God. So we don't have, in verse 3, we, we, don't, we don't have because we don't ask God. And when we do ask, we don't receive because we ask with wrong, wrong motive to spend it on, get, to get, sorry, that you may spend what you want to get on your pleasures. So James is saying you, we've got broken relationships with each other and a broken relationship with God. Because we, we sacrifice others, we throw them under the bus to get what we want. And then when we do think to come to God and ask, well, we don't get it because we don't want it for other people. It's only to serve our own needs. See, that's the thing, isn't it? Our hearts are, are a mess, if we're honest, and we look within. He goes on in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell within us? You see, he again picks up another Old Testament theme, James does. He says, actually, God is is passionately in love with his people. And our response is, is like an unfaithful husband or wife. He says, do you know what? I think I can get better elsewhere. I'm going to leave and find my pleasures met somewhere else. It's a, it's a stark picture, isn't it? But it's one that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 17 or, or Hosea, the whole book is about that, that God's people are like an unfaithful spouse. So if wisdom is, is not just what we do, but who we are, James says that we are in a bit of a mess. And if you could put it more bluntly, a hopeless mess. Where do we go? Well, the next two words are some of the best words in the Bible. But God. They crop up all through the New Testament. And they are good news, aren't they? Because if we're honest, if that is the state of us and our hearts, well, this isn't a letter to non-Christians. This isn't a letter to outside the church. This is God's people that James is writing to. And this is the state of them. This is the state of us. It would make sense 
if we were God, to say, well, forget it. I've, I've given you grace and kindness. I've given you Jesus. And that's how you repay me? It, it would be fair enough, wouldn't it? But, but James 4, no, it's James 6, sorry, is incredible. But he gives us more grace. There's more grace in God than there is sin in us. God's reaction is to give more grace, which is incredible, isn't it? Thomas Goodwin uh, had a, a book. He was, I don't know, 17-something. Um, but it's called The Heart of Christ in Heaven to Sinners on Earth. And I'm not going to read the quote because it's in all 17th century language. Um, but basically he said that God acts towards us like we act towards a child who is wayward. If, say you've got two children and, and one of them is going to school like they should, they're behaving, they're eating what they need, they're sleeping properly, uh, they're going to church and they're, they're learning about God and they seem to be growing in faith. And then you've got another child who is wayward. He, they're, why did I go for he? <laughs> Telling that, isn't it? Um, say your, your little boy is, is a bit of a mess. He's a tear away. He's out all the time, um, maybe starting to do things that he shouldn't do. Um, not at church, arguing with you, just, just a mess. How, how do you react? Where do your thoughts go? Where do your affections go as a parent? They don't start to abandon them. You actually feel more strongly towards the tearaway. You think about them more. You love them more. You, you agonize over them. You pray. You, you spend your time caring for them. And, and Thomas Goodwin said, that's how God reacts when he sees the mess in our lives. It doesn't drive him away from us like we might expect. It drives him rather to us. He wants to help. He cares. He feels. He, he acts with love towards us. Isn't that amazing that that's how God reacts? Especially when we've read what we've, we've read there. But why is that where James goes? Why does he go to that? Well, God gave him more grace is, is absolutely key. You probably know in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 7, I think, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So James says, when you look at the mess of your lives, when how you act is, is causing disharmony and problems, what you need is wisdom. And how do we get wisdom? Well, we fear God. That's what Proverbs tells us. And one of my favorite um, psalms in the, the Old Testament is Psalm 130. And it's got this kind of enigmatic phrase in it. Um, it says, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, and you think it would go, you are praised, you are loved, you are adored. No, with, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you're feared. See, if we're going to be wise, we need to fear God. If we're going to fear God, we'll we know we're forgiven. And it's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? If God forgives us, why on earth would we fear? Well, Charles Spurgeon said, um, in this childlike fear, there's not an atom of that fear that, which signifies being afraid. Sounds like two wisdoms, doesn't it? Two fears. But there's, there's no, no atom of that fear that signifies being afraid. We who believe in Jesus are not afraid of our Father. God forbid that we ever should be. The nearer we can get to him, the happier we are. Our highest wish is to be forever with him and to be lost in him. 
But still we pray that we may not grieve him. We beseech him to keep us from turning aside from him. We ask for his tender pity towards our infirmities and plead with him to forgive us and to deal graciously with him for his own dear son's sake. As loving children, we feel holy awe and reverence as we realize our relationship to him, who is our father in heaven, a dear, loving, tender, pitiful father. Yet our heavenly father, who is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all that are about him. See, the fear that comes from knowing we're forgiven is more like being overwhelmed, isn't it? We can't look at God and go, oh, he's just our mate. How amazing that the God of the universe would forgive us. And that knowledge brings us to, to fear him, to love him, to be overwhelmed by who he is. And so James, ever the practical, says, you start there. You start with God giving more and more and more mercy. There's more mercy in God than there is sin in us. And that spring that the fountain flows from then is is how we act. Because then he goes on. He says, that's why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a strange list, isn't it? Some of them make sense. You know, okay, submit to God. Well, that seems to make sense. But if I'm honest, verse 9, anyone else read that and go, what? Grieve, mourn, and wail. God gives us more grace and our response is to grieve, mourn, and wail. It doesn't seem to fit, does it? Well, It takes a bit of thought, but imagine the prodigal son. Now, he's he's gone off, he's squandered all, well, he started off by saying to to the father who's God in the story, you're dead to me. I'm going to get my meat, I'm going to take your money, all I want from you is money. I don't want you, I want your stuff. And I'm going to go and try and make uh, myself happy elsewhere. And it it works for a while, doesn't it? And then he runs out. And he he, he kind of gets to that point and says, what what am I going to do? I've got nothing left. He says, okay, maybe if I go back, I can get a job. Maybe my father will be kind enough to let me be a servant because I'll be better off like that. And then there's that picture, isn't there? The father goes running out and wraps his arms around the son and says, you're back, you're in the family you're home, you're loved. There's nothing, he, he doesn't even let him get the apology out, does he? Now, can you imagine um, for that son living afterwards when he thinks about where he looked for joy and satisfaction before, he's going he's gonna to run a mile, isn't he? He's going to submit to the father and say, do you know what, where can I go but you? You're the one who satisfies me. You're the one with uh, kindness and more and more and more grace than I deserve. He's going to resist the devil. So when the devil tempts him and says, do you think you fancy a party over there? Take your father's money and run again? He's going to say, no, get lost. Why would I do that? He's going to respond by resisting the devil and coming near to God. Because that God was the one who showed him more and more mercy. And when he thinks about even 
potentially maybe taken some of his father's money to go and run away elsewhere, it's going to make him sad. He's going to grieve and mourn and wail because, not because he doesn't like a party, but he couldn't dare question the father's love and he would do nothing to hurt the father who had been so merciful to him. It's like Paul says when he describes his ministry that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's, there's a godly sorrow, isn't it? Isn't there? When we look at our sin and there's a constant joy as we look away from our sin to the Father who shows us mercy. And again, it's like Jesus said in the um, Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You see, James is ever the practical he says God acts, and then we act in line with that. We always look back to the, fa- the spring that the fountain flows from, God's mercy towards us, and then we act in line with it. And we're humbled, and we're changed, and our hearts are warmed, and we start to walk in wisdom. Shall I pray for us? Father God, Father God, we we do pray that we will see more of your mercy towards us. And as we see your mercy, we will be changed. As we see your mercy, we will become wise. You will humble us. You will cause us to submit to you. Father God, we know that there are so many areas in our lives where where we're not wise. I pray that we will be. I pray that we will Come and see your mercy afresh and grow in wisdom. Amen.